This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gaillard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Patti. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% episodes left before we hit 100. Oh, good one. You were looking forward to that one. I've been dying to say that. <laughs> Don't we have two episodes left until we make 100, which will make it 2% left? Which is why I said one episode left after this oh right you've been sitting on that for years (laughs) yeah that's the thing years literally years just so we clarify online guys because i had a lot of um people who are concerned about this i don't think we're gonna stop about after 100 episodes we need to figure out what we do but i don't think we're gonna stop is that correct guys that is well joel always (laughs) likes to play takeaway with me (laughs) Um, no, I don't think we will. One way or the other. We might go to Ica in the fall. Um, we will probably do, if not a full season seven, at least a number of episodes. I think that's the working hypothesis for now. I still harbor this idea of doing a live quiz show, like a game show of arbitration yes. related stuff and then recording it. Uh, I have no idea if that can work out and I probably won't have the energy to organize it, but that's my dream. They're going to do that. I, I didn't tell you that. Uh, no, really? <laughs> so, yeah, Karina Baltek and um, and uh, Mike uh, uh, got in touch uh, to do that um, during ICA, a uh, clear arbitration quiz. To do a quick, I'm not talking, and with all oh, respect okay. to Karina and Mike Mikarath, who are good friends of the podcast, I'm talking about <laughs> like a, a, a goddamn, you know, full on American game show with a host and like teams competing and buzzing in on time and various different elements. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I'm in. <laughs> we need, I, we I need to, we, for those. yeah, we need to find the, the, the team players. That yeah. Great. That's the hard part. You need actual nerds. I have a few ideas of people who are, I know I have at least two people in mind already, so we can discuss <laughs> that offline. Yeah. I have about 40 <laughs> people in mind. <laughs> um, yeah. Where in the world are you, Sadia? Uh, Cambridge at the minute, and I'm going to Malta in two hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, just getting ready to jump in a plane. Uh, what about you guys? Where are you? I'm in London in my house working on a few things, but um, going to LA next week. So, that's oh my gosh, you're uh, yes, of course, the California tour. See some okay. sun and see some family. What about you, Joel? I am also in London, just home from Sun and Family in Sweden, which sounds like a joke, but it's June. You would know, Brian, that when it's sunny in Sweden in June, it really is sunny for 
like 20 hours a day. <laughs> That's true. That was really nice. And I'm also going to the US pretty soon. I'll be in New York uh, also next week and the week after that. So I think we'll have to record remotely uh, if we don't mm. pre-record and, and uh, don't tell our listeners. Well, that's what we're doing right now. We're recording remotely, even yeah. if we're in the same time zone. <laughs> so it's going to be the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, Did you guys see that uh, GAR 45 under 45 is relaunched after like a 10-year hiatus? I didn't know that it went on a hiatus. I think the last one was in like 2011 or something, because I went ah. through the list of people ranked and it's all like senior figures at this point. They were under 45 <laughs> the last time, but now they're, you know. Retired. So why? I'm curious. Why did you go online? How did you find this out? Because I, I think Gore just... announced it. Don't you read Gore uh, regularly? I mean, I saw it, but I didn't click on it. I was just like, oh, um, you know, it. It just. I'm just surprised that you would be like, oh, I want to have a look. Who's nominated? Are there like nominations? No, no there's a list. A, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. There, so I'm talking about the list. The last time the the published ah, list okay, came okay, out okay, okay. was 10 years ago now they've uh, put out a call for applications or oh. nominations as well and then they will do it's basically like a very niche specific version of the legal 500 chambers oh. whatever but it's arbitrators or people in private practice at the below the age of 45 so it's like a, a hot young list yes. w- which used to be a big thing in the arbitration community i think before we ah. were even active in it and now it's yeah. back. And I figured since you're both under 45. Oh, and we're better. hot and young. And yeah. <laughs> pretty young and, things. So, and yeah. pretty hot and young. Look for us. Yes. Come That'll on. be my application. It'll be like Elle Woods <laughs> in a bikini in my pool. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, I was just talking about this offline. It seems like we've become celebrities in certain parts of the world, uh, very specific parts of the world where there are a lot of arbitration nerds. So yes, please, if you listen to us, vote for us. <laughs> I don't think it's voting. I think you need one nomination. And then, ah, right. and then okay. Gar will contact you if they think you're worthy of you the nomination. You just need one nomination? I'm yes. going to ask my mom then. I you don't need my- to. I've already <laughs> nominated you, Sadia. I've nominated you, but I have not nominated Brian, who I think still uh, has to make his case as to why he's uh, oh, deserving that's- of recognition. <laughs> Wow. Brian, I will nominate wow. you. Don't worry. <laughs> we will not be having another season of the Arbitration Station podcast. <laughs> we'll be one host less. <laughs> Hint, oh. he just went to Sweden. <laughs> and what about, and Joel, you can't be in there because you're not private practice. Is that right? I, I think so. And I also think I'm not prominent enough. Maybe if they do a 45 under, oh, under 35, on. I might have a shot. Oh, I'm my God. And, and oh my gosh. And yeah, that's, that's a good opportunity for you to mention that you are much younger than us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate Subtle. It. All right, cool. So what are we talking about today? Uh, you'll start us off, right, Sonia? Oh yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to pawn that off. Yeah. Uh, the French. I'm going to be speaking in Francais a little bit. Uh, no, about the French, uh, about the French courts to be particular and about corruption also known as corruption in your language. (laughs) Um, Yes, there's been a recent case that everyone was talking about at Paris Arbitration Week and more generally the Bilocon case. Um, So I'm going to speak a little bit about that. Um, So that's going to be it. I guess we'll get to that when we get to that. But are we talking about corruption as such or are we talking about domestic court review? Because that's what I thought we'd be talking about and what I am much more comfortable so don't worry, we're going to speak about what you are comfortable with, which is uh, the domestic court review of awards that have been challenged on the basis of corruption. Oh, voilà. oh it sounds like you're oh, okay. right in his wheelhouse. <laughs> 
All right. So this we're will be Joel's bid for 45 under 45. For okay, perfect. Nominate him. It won't <laughs> be me. I'll tell you that. Um, I will take the next topic, which will be a light touch to a, sense, a substantive topic, arbitration advocacy and criminal matters. Um, this comes from an article from Juan Murillo, Gabriel Soledad, and Alexander Leventhal at Quinn Emanuel. And they wrote about taking, kind of jumping off from Sadia's topic, to discuss the advocacy positions that one must consider when they have to deal with a criminal law element in arbitration. Sounds really intriguing too. And then we're doing happy fun time about the client relationship and how to work with and manage your relationship to your clients. I have none. So I will be uncharacteristically. (laughs) We all have clients. (laughs) We all have clients. Yeah. So we'll talk about this. Yeah. I'm sure you do. I mean, you have clients, don't you? Don't you consider your People who engage arbitrators, your clients, it's a paid relationship, no? Oh, that's a very Ooh. good point. That's another topic, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Let's return to that once we've opened the, the metaphorical beer, because I guess it's way too early for an actual happy fun time. Okay. As we record. Perfect. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Let's soberly walk into the first episode. So we've been speaking a lot about corruption recently um, for multiple reasons, and I am not going to speak to you about, you know, the burden of proof um, on corruption cases or the threshold of, uh, um, you know, of, of the type of evidence that can be uh, assessed by the arbitrator or not. What I'm really going to speak about right now is the standard of review by domestic courts, and in particular here, I'm going to be speaking about the French domestic courts. Uh, uh, standard of review in, in corruption matters. Uh, why do I think it's a good idea to speak about that now? Because there's been uh, recent cases, a few of them actually, which the French uh, legal community and I think the international community, because everything that happens in France has a kind of a shockwave effect everywhere in the world, Paris being one of the main seats of arbitration on the uh, standard of review of domestic courts. Said on, the um, French woman. Yes, exactly. I'm actually not biased at all uh, by saying that. But it's true. It's true because you guys know about this. You guys know about what has been going on. You guys know about what the French call the IPO. What is an IPO? An initial public offering. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The international public uh, policy. Why do I I say international public order? Sorry. So, Ordre Public International, that's why, uh, yeah, IPO. Yeah. I think maybe you just so. undermined your own case because we didn't know that acronym at all because we're not in France. I don't think it's an acronym. I, I just made it up because I wrote it in my notes <laughs> and I was like, IPO, that sounds nice. That sounds nice. So, everyone now, please refer to uh, IPO when you talk about the Frenchness uh, review, the, the French review of um, international uh, public order. Now, why uh, am I talking about international public order? Just to put things in a box again, uh, because I know there's a lot of pieces here in the puzzle. Um, New York Convention, uh, obviously, a review of arbitral awards. Uh, for Sorry, uh, I just have to, I, my, I am a little slow. Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Sadia. I was taught in Swedish law school that the French call this order public and not whatever you just called it, international public order. They call she it just translated. No, no, no. It's you're right. It's it ordre public, but it's ordre public international. Wouldn't that be OPI then instead of IPO? Yeah, she translated it. Yeah, so international uh. Uh, 
Okay, don't mind public me. I'll, order. I'll, I'll mute. But it's international <laughs> public policy. <laughs> I, I imagine it's IPP and not IPO, but oh my gosh. International public order. Public order. You say public order in English, don't you? Or you public just policy. Say public policy. Well, okay. You know what, Yen? Scrap this whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, international public uh, order. I. Uh, international public policy. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it doesn't matter. Sorry, back to New York Convention, and I will mute and not throw okay, anything else. Okay, so in New York Convention. New York Convention. You can. Uh, what are the grounds for setting aside an award? There's multiple ones. I'm not going to go through them all, but as you know, one of them is um, when the award does not is not in conformity with public policy. order. Public policy. Gosh, it's public policy, not public order. Say it in French. Uh, And the French review is on the, as a very strict, limited approach um, and review of what constitutes a violation of international um, public uh, policy. And what is part of international public policy? Of course, the, the, that's where we speak about corruption because corruption Money laundering is part of international, um, uh, you know, at least the fight against uh, corruption and fight against money laundering is part of international public policy. And that has been confirmed recently by the French courts. I don't think that's really new. Uh, so that's not the newest uh, thing that, that has happened. But um, that was just an element of, um, of contact uh, here. Um, so here, what is the case that I wanted to speak about? I wanted to speak about the Belumkong, uh, Kyrgyzstan case. I don't know if you guys have heard about this at all. Yes. You know what? Yeah? All three Why? arbitrators are Scandinavian. Oh, really? One of the oh, rare treaty cases. Probably the only treaty case where all the three oh. arbitrators are Scandinavians. Okay, very interesting. So that's right down your alley then. So it's a it's a dispute that arose from a series of measures taken by Kyrgyzstan in regards to Bellicon's investment in a local bank, which was placed into administration and eventually declared insolvent by Kyrgyz authorities. Uh, Bellicon subsequently initiated at it's an ad hoc unsettled arbitration, which explains why it made its way before the French courts. Um, under the Latvia Kyrgyzstan BIT, um, and uh, it was seated in uh, Paris, which is also ex- uh, why it went. It made its way before the, the French domestic courts. Uh, so, uh, like I <clears throat> initially mentioned, um, under the French Code of Civil Procedure, you have Article fifteen twenty point five, which allows a party to seek an element of an award where its recognition or execution would be contrary to French principles of international public policy, which is basically incorporation of the New York Convention standards. Um, in this case, the Court of Appeal found strong evidence that Bilincon acquired his interest in the bank by corrupt means. And in order to facilitate money laundering in the absence of effective government oversight, uh, the Court of Appeal set aside the award as its recognition in France would have allowed Bellingham to benefit from its unlawful activities, contrary to the fight against money laundering recognized by the Court of Appeal as a principle of international public policy. Bellingham subsequently appealed to the Supreme Court, which is the Court de Cassation, alleging I know that, that word now. I know that yeah, word now. the Court de Cassation, yeah. Uh, uh, alleging that the court had exceeded its powers under Article uh, 1520.5 by re-examining the merits of the awards, uh, the novel, basically. 
um, and illegal standards, for instances, in which an appeal court uh, tackles a point uh, new as new uh, as if the lower court had not rendered a decision on the matter and substituting its own factual uh, analysis. What did the Cour de Cassation say? The Cour de Cassation confirmed, and that was a bit Uh, you know, surprising for a few people because it's really rare um, that awards are set aside on that basis. But it confirmed that the prohibition and fight against money laundering is the subject of broad international consensus as recognized by the 2003 United Nations Conventions Against Corruption and is therefore included in the core principles of France international public policy. Okay, so that's not something really new, but the court went on to recognize the role of the Court of Appeal. Um, it said was not to review uh, Bellicom's underlying claim under the BIT or the allegations of money laundering under Kigir's law, but to determine the effect that recognizing the award would have on the French legal order. And it said on that basis, and that's the interesting thing, that it was not bound by the evidence put before the tribunal or its findings of fact and was therefore entitled to find as it did that there was serious specific and consistent evidence of money laundering practicing practices sorry in this case um and because here it found that there would um Um, there was evidence uh, that would allow Belongkun to benefit from suspected illegal activities, and it would result in a serious violation of international public policy. It upheld the set-aside decision. I understand also that in these proceedings, there were ongoing criminal proceedings, uh, but there was no conviction. And uh, even though there was no conviction, um, the Court of Appeal still uh, said that there was enough evidence Um to conclude that there was corruption um, uh, activities. And also something new here is that there was evidence in addition to those, the one that was submitted to the tribunal. Right. I, I was just going to ask you that because yeah. that's, I think, an important point. Yeah. Did, did the tribunal have access to the same factual record as the mm. court or did a lot of things happen after the award? So it's that- not, if I, if I, I, I don't want to say something, Thing wrong, but what I understand is um, there was additional evidence here, and it's not necessarily that it was additional uh, evidence that was submitted after. I think it was an admiss- uh, evidence that was submitted before the tribunal, and that the tribunal dismissed it, something like that, and that's why it was a bit concerning because um, it really shows that you know the court is actually doing a you know another assessment. Of the whole case again, it, it it gives you an opportunity to plead the case uh, once again. Um, so it's also like has... it's a living case, so things change, and I'm sure the investigation took got into much greater detail, or maybe was far more advanced at the set aside stage than it was during the arbitration, for example. Yeah, yeah I think probably. that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and yeah, so it is. That's why it's it's a bit. It, you know, a problematic in, in the eyes of certain uh, commentators because it goes, you know, further, you know, than the, the usual role uh, given to uh, the domestic courts. Um, in, in so, some case. could argue, but you could also, I mean, I think we'd need to draw a distinction between jurisdiction and merits. We've talked about this in other contexts. Yes. The court yeah. is not explicitly, it sounds like according to the Code de Cassation, not express, expressly, especially not reviewing the merits of the case, but they are acting as a check on jurisdiction. And in this case, the threat against determinate jurisdiction 
as public policy. Yes, and but I mean, they did. The more they did firmly mention- within, within the courts, domestic courts generally think that they. Many courts, it's not just in France. In England, for example, it's I think even more accepted that the courts make de novo reviews mm-hmm. of jurisdictional questions because jurisdiction is different from the merits, and it's the job of the domestic court to ensure that there was proper jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I don't think they went here into the distinction between jurisdiction and merits, but it's interesting that um, the Supreme Court highlighted again um, here expressly that um, the Court of Appeals review of the facts underlying the alleged breach of international public policy was not a substantive review of the findings of the tribunal, but only a review of the awards conformity with principles of international public policy. Mm. But even though it has said that, it just sounds like, um, you know, it's saying one thing, but um, the effect of it was that it actually, it seemed like um, the domestic court have actually reviewed um, the, the case I, again. I think... Um... I don't know exactly when this came out, but I know that re- recently, maybe more recently than this, um, at some point, like a month ago, mm-hmm. there was another decision in the um, Schooner capital versus Poland, which was also set aside. Um, no, it, it was not set aside, but it was a set aside proceeding in Paris. And so there the was an expressly yeah. said that new arguments and the facts needed to support those arguments are allowed at the set-aside stage in Mm. France. Specifically, that point was addressed, I think. There was also another case. I don't know if it's the same one that you're mentioning, but it's the Santulo case in April. Because this one, the Bilicon case was in March and the Santulo case was in on 5th of April. And it annulled an award also on the grounds of corruption uh, using this the new standard actually that was set by the Cour de Cassation, um, and which is, you know, the fact that it can review um, basically, you know, um, a, a bit, a bit more um, extent is extent is extent. Oh my God, I can't speak today. Uh, help me out. Extensive. Uh, yes, please. Uh, the, the the you know whether or not there was a violation of international public policy. Um, it, it referred to the red flags test to see if there was uh, corruption or not. Um, and, and in this case, and you're right, I think that's the one, Joel, uh, there were further elements that had been uncovered since the award, um, such as I think there was Swiss criminal proceedings confirming the allegations of corruption, which the tribunal could not have been aware of. So that's a different case scenario than the Bellicone Award, which was different because there were I don't think there were new elements. It was just documents that... Um, you know that the, the the court said we're not we're not bound by what the tribunal has uh, decided with respect to those documents. We can look at them or something like that. I wonder how reason. how many people or how widespread the understanding is in the arbitration community that it is very likely that you would get a second bite at the apple, so to speak, mm-hmm. for certain kinds of arguments in domestic courts. I think, especially if you're primarily practicing commercial arbitration, I think the default, the gut feeling of many arbitration practitioners is that there will be no review of the merits. There will only be uh, uh, like new evidence, new arguments based on what happened during the arbitration, you know, the procedural problems, et cetera, during the arbitration. But this is essentially a retrial on something that is more substantive, not in the substantive versus procedural sense, but in the, like, the meatier, uh, more extensive sense. Mm-hmm. And you're know. right. 
Dave, also, sorry, just to jump on this um, distinction that you put earlier, I think we discussed it as well. Uh, they have been actually cases that made a, a difference between, oh, it's not a jurisdictional matter, it's a merits matter. So I still have jurisdiction um, to, to review this. Or, yeah, I guess or, corruption in particular yeah. is, is tricky to yeah. categorize. It depends a yeah. lot on, on the treaty in mm-hmm. question and, and how you frame it. But it could obviously mm-hmm. be both jurisdiction and merits, depending on the case and the applicable rules like mm-hmm. it, it might taint the investment or the investor status status under a treaty but it might also be much more of yeah. a merits case i guess yeah 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 and just on that i know we, we weren't going to speak about just the standard um you know on you know how to prove corruption because that's a whole other segment but just because we are talking about french courts i, I wanted to mention there has been an evolution of uh, the review of uh, corruption so um you know before I would say until 2012 or something, it was you needed to really have a blatant, obvious uh, violation, effective and concrete. In French, it was flagrant, effectif et concret, which was the Thales um, 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 decisions. Um, and then Fla- it, flagrant is a good word in English that is never used is it? in legal context. Yeah, flagrant it's, it's, is an yeah. English word because I just thought, you know, public order is not right. You said public policy. So no, flagrant, no, no, flagrant. I couldn't dare. Flagrant, flagrant is a good disregard, one. flagrant yeah. misrepresentation. Yeah. Okay, so flagrant. Yeah, they say flagrant, effective, et concret. Flagrant. And qui crève les yeux, it really hurts your eyes because it's so obvious. It's like stares you in the face. That was mm-hmm. the, um, the criteria. Would you say that it's more obvious than manifest, which is otherwise the Well, that's the, that's the thing. So afterwards, they scrapped uh, the term flagrant and they, and they replaced it by manifest. In uh, 2012, in the Planor. Uh, yeah, because flagrantism implies some intention, um, whereas mis- yeah, whereas yeah, manifest is just more appearing on the third. So it could be more a subjective analysis versus an objective analysis. There was a discussion on whether or not it was a bit more, you know, different um, in terms of standard of review and everyone agreed that, you know, um, it had become um, a bit more vague now mm. uh, before it was very, very limited. Um, and it was criticized, actually. It was very criticized by none other than Professor Gaillard, actually. He had a huge impact, uh, people say, on the change of the review of the French courts, because he said if it's if you're reviewing it from a for um, commercial perspective, because it's you know a commercial award, why are you using criminal criminal uh, language or criminal yeah, high standards. you know standards? Um, so there's been a, a distinction, and uh, and now the Supreme Court, uh, so the Cour de Cassation, is actually using a different language altogether. It says violation caractérisée, so a characteristic breach. Of um, uh, of international uh, public um, public policy, and you know, query as to whether that's even um, you know a bit a bit wider um, mm. in terms of um, a violation. It seems to be. It seems to be, and that is the standard that has been used now. The language that is being used by the French courts. Uh, again, the domestic court since that um, that decision. I want to so throw something in, in here too, because you're you are helping me now, started to make the argument that I was making in my book, where the where overarching argument is that, in terms of jurisdiction or various jurisdictional issues, the distinction between exit and non-exit rules in investment cases really matters, and in the non-exit context, 
you can end up anywhere more or less yeah. and you can't really predict depending on the domestic tradition whereas yeah. exit is exit and i think this is an example of that distinction being important had this been an exit case this whole debate would not have happened because there's no public policy ground in the exit convention to annul an award and there is no such thing as like french versus international public policy in the exit sense and you mm-hmm. don't get a, a retrial quote unquote in exit annulment you cannot retry jurisdiction typically no. in the exit context so had this been an exit case this whole development most likely would not have happened but in a different way it might have happened because they, you could have argued maybe that the jurisdiction the tribunal didn't have jurisdiction because the um, agreement yeah manifest uh, excess of powers powers then. manifest excess of powers or would it have been just that the consent was invalid but i think even so yeah you would not be able it's to based new on evidence treaty as yes well. no you, of course that, for sure that's not acceptable i think yeah the, yeah, yeah, yeah. practice no, I completely agree. Completely agree. And it's interesting because what you say, I, I just had a discussion recently with someone on this and people tend to forget the main, it's a very big difference uh, when you bring an exit case or, um, or ad hoc arbitration, because then you're subject to, you know, New York convention. If New York convention doesn't apply, then the domestic uh, laws of that jurisdiction is very different than having... And the domestic uh, system as well. In France, yeah, you go to the Court of Appeal and then you go, go to Court de Cassation if you're yeah. not lucky and then it goes back to the Court of Appeal. And, you know, you have yeah, a yeah, 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 yeah. Domestic absolutely. procedure. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Uh, completely agree. I, I um, just, I should have maybe start started with that, but I think it's important to give out some numbers on... Um, on corruption, because it's not a matter that like, here we're talking about Kyrgyzstan. Um, but recently there was a report by uh, Transparency International and uh, the OECD. And also just to put to put things in context again, that just crazy amount of, of uh, transactions are subject to uh, corruption and money laundering. Um, so a lot of states have been criticized, uh, especially a lot of them that have been signatory of the OECD convention on the fight against corruption that themselves don't apply those standards. Um, so there has been a criticism um, on the, on that end as well. Um, so, yeah. And again, if you can give me one second, I can find those, <laughs> those numbers. I don't have them here, but uh, if it's interesting, I can, I can pull them out. Uh, here we go. Just give me one minute. It's, um, yeah. So Transparency International notes in its October 2020 exporting corruption report that more than three quarters of global exports are potentially affected by corruption and highlights that most countries that are signatories to the above mentioned OECD convention are not in compliance with their commitments made more than 20 years ago. I mean, that was, you know. There's also a corruption perception index published in January 2022. 154 out of 180 countries have regressed or made no notable progress in the fight against corruption over the past 10 years, and 27 countries have reached their lowest score this year. Um, so, yeah, so just, just to give some context, that is a living issue. So we'll have a lot of other awards um, subject to, I think, annulment on the basis of um of corruption yeah if i can give oh sorry sorry no sorry yeah before you do the the link to um to brian's topic i just wanted to give a shout out to a few articles that i read on this that i thought were really interesting 
Uh, the first one is, I cannot not cite uh, my colleagues Astrid Westphalen and Alexandre Rep, who published an article on proving corruption in international arbitration, navigating existing practices and recent case law that has been published in the International Business Law Journal of 2022, like just recently. Uh, so there's this one. And uh, because I don't want to sound like I'm a corporate uh, freak, just citing my own colleagues' articles, of course, I, there's also a very good summary of the Bellicon Award done uh, by multiple other firms, um, one of them uh, by um, some friends from Signature Litigation, including Flor Polony, that was uh, published in Global Arbitration Review of May 2022, and another one by, um, uh, by some friends at Herbert Smith, uh, that was published uh, by them in uh, May 2022 as well. So just there's a plenty uh, out there. Voila. <laughs> do you, you want to bridge it now, Brian, over to your segment? No, let's move on. All right. Well, we just heard whether a criminal element exists, not only in the arbitration, but also in the set-aside proceedings, but also the tasks of the advocate during the arbitration could be different. Um, whereas a criminal law advocate might be guided by the comprehensive set of procedural rules drafted by the legislator in the specific state, the arbitrating or arbitrator advocate can tailor the process to the needs and interests of this client. So some of the examples where criminal law can collide with arbitration. First is when one or both of the parties are subject to criminal allegations or victims of alleged misconduct. So for example, if the underlying contract is invalid owing to some illegal purpose or because in the case we were just talking about, it was procured by corruption. Um, the second example is obviously it involves a state or state entity where a party to the arbitration itself may, the state, may use its police powers to pursue criminal allegations against a private party or others relevant to the dispute. And although these may be secondary to the ongoing arbitration, it could be primary and a primary issue if um, if, the, if a party alleges in the arbitration that the state's conduct breaches international obligations, that then the criminal uh, element may be subject to the arbitration itself. So this article that I cited in the introduction gave us three hallmark rules that an advocate consider, can consider when there is a criminal element. And the first one, obviously, is knowing your ethical obligations when something criminal is afoot. So we must keep in mind our ethical obligations, any applicable confidentiality obligations, and then obviously the candor and honesty of our advocacy. So the first one being aware of our ethical obligations, I think we all know the, the simple one, which is if you know that your client has broken the law or is about to break the law, you do have a professional responsibility that will most likely require you to take some action, whether it's reporting that or preventing them from proceeding. However, in the other jurisdictions, um, it could be that if you're performing enough of your legal services in that jurisdiction, you may be subject to some disclosure obligations to local authorities if there is um, an example of criminal proceedings or criminal action that could happen. So and a difficult situation where this arose, that I've, this comes from Catherine Rogers' Ethics and International Arbitration published in Oxford University Press in 2014. There was a case of a German lawyer practicing in the United Kingdom who refused to make a disclosure of client information as required by the British Proceeds of Crime Act in 2002. The lawyer was convicted and imprisoned in the UK for refusing to disclose the information, 
even though the disclosure would have subjected him to disciplinary measures in Germany. So mm. the um, the advocates' uh, own uh, uh, res- professional responsibilities conflicted with where the case was proceeding. Also, within knowing your ethical obligations, you have to think before you speak publicly. Often in these uh, grand investor state arbitrations, there are some media strategies that can happen in parallel. So it's important to think before you advocate in a public forum, um, because you shouldn't forget that when there are parallel criminal proceedings, the confidentiality or secrecy obligations applicable to the criminal proceedings may extend to the arbitration proceedings. So whereas in your arbitration, you think you can speak freely in your investor state case in the public forum, there may be some confidentiality or secrecy obligations. Um, Mm. For example, in the US, they have an exception to the public nature of their criminal proceedings for when uh, the charges are still being decided against a suspect. In that case, these things have to be kept confidential, which is kind of what tipped me off to what we were talking about in potentially the issue relevant in these set-aside proceedings was whether the investigations had proceeded to a level where any secrecy obligations during the arbitration would have ceased Mm -hmm. to exist. Um, Likewise, breaching the confidentiality obligations in the arbitration may cause a party to lose favor with the tribunal or lead to sanctions. That happened in Pope and Talbot v. Canada, which I did not know, where an after-tribunal ordered the claimant to pay costs of $10,000 after its counsel leaked to the media a draft document that was inadvertently uh, leaked to opposing counsel. Um, Again, do not violate your obligation of candor and honesty to the tribunal. So you have to correct any misrepresentations or anything you learned subsequently to be false. That I think is quite obvious. There was one case, the government of Lao People's Democratic Republic versus Lao Holdings and Sanam Investments. That was a SEAC case. Um, and that the majority of the distinguished tribunal allocated costs against a party whose counsel, it concluded, committed fraud on the tribunal when it advanced an argument based on a document that the majority considered clearly false and misleading. Mm -hmm. The majority said there are limits to zealous advocacy and it cannot be acceptable. Continue to advance an argument that the evidence clearly shows is not true. Mm -hmm. So if you tie that to allegations of criminal, um, criminal misconduct, you need to make sure that that you're not just alleging criminal misconduct in order to put the opposing party in a bad eye or a bad light in front of the tribunal, that it should be honest and with the utmost candor to the tribunal. Mm-hmm. Rule number two that has been elicited is to know how to navigate criminal law issues. So avoid interfering with criminal proceedings, either by antagonizing the prosecutor or disclosing privileged information. Two, leverage the facts of any criminal proceeding and any evidence obtained for the benefit of the arbitration proceeding and show how your client has been victimized. But in any event, you must coordinate with local authorities so the arbitration proceedings do not adversely affect criminal proceedings and ensure that you understand the key facts at issue. So understanding these key facts and coordinating with local authorities are important because any errors or omissions in the presentation of facts and law will cause you to lose credibility of the tribunal or compromise the criminal proceedings and your potentially your client's interests in those proceedings. And I think there's a third element here, and it's the ability to use both proceedings to your advantage to elicit some sort of evidentiary record based on the alleged criminal conduct. So you Mm -hmm. have the 
coercive powers of criminal law jurisdictions to obtain further evidence through these investigations. But in the arbitration proceedings itself, you can elicit evidence during document disclosure that could exculpate your client or show how your client has been victimized that could then be used in the criminal proceedings or in the criminal investigation. So they kind of are mutually beneficial or mutually harmful, however way you uh, look at it. Mm-hmm. And finally, rule number three is knowing when to use the claim of illegality to your client's advantage or to the opposing party's disadvantage. So in an investor state dispute, showing illegality can deprive the tribunal of its jurisdiction or render claims inadmissible. As Joel said, an allegation of corruption could make the investment, quote unquote, investment under the applicable treaty uh, that would that there was not an investment and therefore the investor would not be able to invoke substantive provisions of the treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, for example, in commercial arbitration is showing a contract's purpose is to carry out illegal conduct or that it was procured by any illegal conduct could prevent the tribunal from granting relief, render the contract void ab initio or contrary to international public policy. And you can also use the criminal proceedings to advance objectives in the arbitration. As I said, there is evidence collecting opportunities. So for example, if your client has suffered damage as a result of some monopolistic conduct of its contractual counterparty, or as a result of the counterparty's corrupt practices, a criminal complaint or referral may be appropriate in parallel to the arbitration. But you should always be aware that in, under certain jurisdictions, you have a professional responsibility not to threaten criminal proceedings or threaten to bring criminal proceedings. Do you guys have that in your professional obligations that you can't threaten criminal proceedings? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. I'm sure. I'm sure that we do in the U S it's always top of mind. You can't write at the end of your letter before action. Like I'll sue you. Yeah. No, say I can sue you for civil, but but not for criminal and we'll throw you in jail. Okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And obviously you need to make sure that there are, that your, interaction with the criminal investigation could backfire on your client, for example, waiving a client's right against self-incrimination or basically throwing your client in the middle of an ongoing investigation. Now, you can also use the arbitral proceedings conversely and to advance your objectives in the criminal proceedings. And in one case, a tribunal acting under uh, the exit or pursuant to the exit convention ordered a state to suspend its criminal proceedings against three claimants and withdraw an extradition request against two of those claimants. While the state did not ultimately suspend the criminal proceedings, the order compelled the court of a third party state to refuse the extradition request. And that was in Hydro and uh, SRL v. Albania, an exit case. And that was the order of provisional measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I've never, I've, I've, there have been allegations of criminal misconduct in my cases, but I have not faced parallel criminal proceedings that were happening, but I can imagine how delicate that is to work in tandem with a ongoing criminal investigation, or even you would have to engage local criminal counsel to advise you on every step that you take in the arbitration that could be used against you. There was actually a panel on corruption um, at the GAR Live event, uh, GAR Live BIT's event uh, yesterday in London. 
on the 8th of June, just to, <laughs> to at the time of recording. Um, and um, and uh, I was talking offline to some of the panelists and they were mentioning that they had experienced once of parallel corruption as uh, parallel criminal proceedings, exactly what you mentioned, where a witness was testifying from prison. Mm. Also, can you imagine by Zoom? I've never seen that before. That's uh, pretty intense. Yeah, I think we're because we're taught at like arbitration 101 mm. fundamentals of arbitration in law school that criminal matters are non-arbitrable. I think mm -hmm. many aspiring arbitration lawyers tend to like mentally check out and you know put that outside the box mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. I am going to work with, like antitrust matters or mm -hmm. tax disputes, whatever. Yeah. It's it's not it's not going to happen in arbitration, so I'm not going to care about it. Turns out it tends to come in both in investment and commercial arbitration from various different angles. And it's not a bad idea to be at least somewhat well-versed in basic no. cr criminal law principles. Well, if you go back to study statistics, I mean, if you look at any commercial contract that's affecting 150 out of 180 countries, what you said, Sadia? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're like looking at a lot of contracts. Um, and again, it, corruption obviously is the big one, but it can be tainted. It's illegality in, uh, under the host state's law. So any contravention of the host state law could be considered illegal and potentially criminal, depending on the jurisdiction. So it could be a much more nuanced allegation than just taking money. Yeah, I have an additional piece of stat that I didn't mention in the earlier segment. So the Global Economic Crime and Fraud Survey published by PwC in 2020 revealed that a third of business leaders surveyed declared that they had been asked to pay a bribe or had lost an opportunity to a competitor they believed had paid a bribe in the past year. And that's just the results of a survey. So imagine all the people who, uh, who have not, you know, even mentioned it. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's out sure. there. It's out there. And also <laughs> parallel criminal proceedings, um, Witnesses, of course, parties, um, but also proceedings against arbitrators. I, I have a case where, um, um, you know, classic <laughs> case where you have a com commercial arbitration award and the other party's not happy with the awards. They're like, okay, there's been um, bias on the part of the tribunal. And mm. so they start criminal prosecuting uh, proceedings uh, against those, uh, those guys um, at the seat uh, of arbitration. What's the alleged crime in that kind of fraud? Or taking a bribe. Taking a bribe, oh, corruption. Okay. Yeah, because then, then you, you, um, yeah, you, you, you make a claim that the tribunal was, um, was corrupt. Mm. And uh, even if you have no evidence or, you know, the, the recent, I mean, I'm not going to, say anything on that on that case because i have no information but it's pretty uh you've all seen this in the news right that uh, yves de Reims was um challenged on that um right on, yeah on that commissant uh, case and it's it's it seems so um you know that the the level this, of, of correct me if i'm wrong now because i know it varies a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction but that weapon typically is only available to a sovereign state no in most systems you can't as a, as a private individual or a legal entity, just launch a criminal case, that's in the discretion of the prosecution, i.e. The, the state. Like you can't but sue someone criminally unless you are representing the state. No, it depends on the applicable law. So if, uh, if uh, you know, uh, corruption or taking a bribe is a criminal act, then why wouldn't a party be able in the... You can to... file a police 
claim or like yeah. ask someone to investigate it. But you can't go to court and like start a criminal case as <laughs> as a private party and say I want the other private party, you know, convicted of a crime. No, uh, well, not in the U.S. Oh, not the other party. No, no, but against the arbitrators, you could. No. Not where I, I think come so. from. I guess this goes to my general point that we should all be better at criminal law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, probably. Probably. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I've seen it happen. So you're right. There might be uh, some distinctions here to, yeah. be, um, uh, to be brought. Okay, sorry. But, you're about to leave. So let's, uh, should we relax yeah, for a let's second? Yeah, let's stop with the crime and punishment and move on to happy fun time. <laughs> All right. Now in happy fun time, and we are talking about how to work with your clients, an area where I think both of you are much more experienced than I am. And I, I am in particularly, in particular, I am interested in the situation where your client is asking or insisting or suggesting you do something that you don't want to do for whatever reason it may be because you don't think it's the best strategy or mm -hmm. because it may implicate some sort of ethical obligation on your and sometimes sitting at the tribunal side as I often do you are wondering like why are they running this thing why mm -hmm. is this part of their arguments why are they spending so much time on this witness and like you know every season arbitration lawyer would see that this is not time well spent for various reasons. And then mm -hmm. it might be because it's subjective and, you know, I don't understand the overarching strategy, but it's easy to suspect that there's a client somewhere wanting something and that the lawyer mm -hmm. obviously has to act on that preference that mm -hmm. the client has, even though the lawyer may think it's not the best idea and may even tell the client it's not the best idea, but still have to do it, obviously. Yeah, I think I, I came across this recently where I think that the lawyers meant uh, to discuss something and it was clear that we could have reached a conclusion if it wasn't but for the client's vivid instructions. And I think I, I kind of clued me in to think there and take away ethical obligations or anything like that. It's also your reputation as an advocate and your ability to manage your client back. So we, we are obviously at every step of the way under the instructions of client, but I think there is a bit of our profession, which is regulating the proceedings in, in the best way that we see fit. And so fitting our clients' expectations and our clients' instructions into what we think will be a successful um, outcome. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think a lot of counsel often maybe fall afoul of that because they are just willing to put forward what, what they're asked to and, as, and zealous, zealously advocate for their client. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are two types of clients, right? I'm sure, Brian, you have the same. There are some um, really hands-on, mm -hmm. uh, really interventionist clients, and they review every single draft. They want to be, um, you know, have strategy conversations with you every single week. Um, and it's it, it can get a bit overwhelming because you constantly have to be like, yeah, no, it's a bad idea or no, that's not going to happen or this is actually not good for your case or your what works usually is you're going to be sanctioned by costs. So if we want yeah, this argument yeah, yeah. and we lose, you're going to pay for it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then they're like, oh, okay, 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 okay. all right, I trust you. Um, and then there's other clients that are a bit more um, usually states, but not always. They're, usually, they're a bit more, okay, we trust you. Um, and of course, they want to be aware and, and 
um, you know, they, they want to know what you're doing, but they're not going to actively participate um, in the defining of, of uh, the strategy. I mean, it, it's, you know, it really depends on the identity of, of uh, the clients. I, I, I don't even think I can do the state or non-state divide because it really depends no, yeah. on, on states, right? Um, and, and, you know, to go back to your point, Jewel, I think um, it, it's also links upon the guerrilla tactic topic that we talked about is sometimes you advance arguments you're, you know are bound to fail, but you're doing it because um, you have the right to do so. And, you know, if they're put together as a whole, if you see the objections uh, as a macro thing, then there's a lot, a lot of obje- objections. The other side will have to respond to all of them. And, uh, you know, even if one works, then you're, you won, you know, you, if you want to dismiss right. jurisdiction, for example, uh, something like that. So I don't know if you've seen that as well and it has some kind of psychological effect uh, if you bring in a lot of, of, um, of, uh, of claims. Well, for example, one of the things, I mean, that, that's not related to the, uh, I had a discussion with a client once. He was like, why are you, I don't understand, why are you invoking the same um, you know, the same measures uh, have been violated, but on the on different basis, which is effectively the same thing when you say violation of FET, indirect expropriation, MFN, right. bring it on, yeah, FPS, FPS, all of them, you know? <laughs> and then you always start with the most general one, your FET and then indirect. And then when you read it, you're like, it's all the same stuff, you know? And then the tribunal is like, you know what? I'm just going to address FET because I don't need to go into the others because there is a violation here then why do we spend so much money? And um, it's a question of strategy as well, right? So right. Uh, discussion with the client as to whether that works or not. I, I want to pick up on Ryan's point about your professional reputation. I think that's an interesting aspect. Is, is this, by which I mean the, the interactions with the client and the fact that you're acting on their instructions and managing them, is that top of mind when you view opposing counsel and how they perform and how they choose their strategies? Like, do you keep this in mind? Say, for example, hypothetical scenario that you're opposing someone in a big case and then you're asked in some sort of ranking review or something else because the, for better or for worse, the system runs on peer review in so many mm. ways. Do you factor that in? Like, do you have suspicion sometimes that this advocate is being held back by his or her clients can you suspect that that's a factor or is that a something i mean i don't know because yeah because this is basically the the difference between just being a blind advocate and a zealous advocate and bringing on arguments that you don't think are valid but i think you can really easily tease out where that emanates from if it's as Sadia said, putting the same breach in 18 different boxes you clearly see that's coming from the advocate but when you have, well, this is obviously a breach and it wasn't a breach at all. Or there's no evidence on that. That's clearly coming from the client who, and I, you can tell because the sections are shorter and the, the verbiage mm-hmm. is broader and mm-hmm. you can, you can say, okay, you're clearly just advancing this because, mm-hmm. and I, I've had clients study, I'm sure you have too, where every time you send the draft back, they send you the same argument and you delete it because it's not worth anything and you send it back <laughs> yeah. and it comes back and there's, there's the <laughs> argument again. And it's because they have such an attachment or yeah. they think that that's, that's going to win the case. And, you know, I'm not saying that every client is unsophisticated, but I think that they, they yeah. don't understand the bigger picture perhaps. And I think it's, 
it's not up to the council to be able to do that. I wouldn't fault council for bringing something innocuous, but I, I think you, you kind of know where these, who's thought this. And in that scenario that you were describing when you're also like a bunch yeah. of lawyers sitting around a table trying to settle or figure something out. And you have the sense that if it were just up to us, we could, yeah. but we each have clients. Uh, and then I guess you also know, even if you don't, you know, you can't say it out loud, just in the, in the cliquey community of lawyers, as you're negotiating, you can't recognize explicitly that <laughs> we, we could solve this. If we could both just get rid of our clients, we could find a, like a sensible compromise that everyone probably would be fine with, but, but. Well, Joel, you know, you're saying that and usually um, business people, clients would say exactly the opposite. Is that oh. once you bring the, yeah, that I always hear the opposite is that when you bring in lawyers, it becomes messy, it becomes legal, it becomes very technical. And uh, we're here to fight, you know? So we're going to fight. We're going to bring that's our true. I guess that's bazookas. the case for, for mediation or conciliation. Yeah. Like built on that premise that if we don't formalize the dispute and just let sensible business people talk in a less litigious, less tense environment, yeah. it will be easier to figure it out. Yeah, and then there's business considerations as well, right? I mean, we never talk about this in our um, in our proceedings. Um, you, you're just, but they're like, okay, we want to keep doing business with you guys. Uh, mm-hmm. This is how much this is going to cost you. This is how much it's going to cost us. Uh, and and we don't talk about this. We just talk about, oh, you violated the corruption. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I think we should, and I, I think we, yeah. I think we should, and this maybe goes back to the civility point. But I think you should say to the client, give them an honest interpretation know what's going to yeah. happen of course there's a perverse incentive to keep it going but you say like i mean we we've heard some good arguments on their side you don't we don't want to get into the weeds the tribunal's not going to understand this argument or whatever it may be to say let's figure and i, I maybe because we're not trained in negotiation although we do negotiations a lot yeah we're, yeah we're not trained in it per se and so we're just entering in as like a mini proceedings where it should be you know getting to the, the book, getting to yes, where it's, you know, increasing the pie yes, so that you can divide yeah. it up more. And, and these yeah, yeah. But who, who would you say on average is more locked into the like binary, we are right, they are wrong. There's no middle ground, black and white here. The, the council or the party, the client? Like, is, is it more likely that the, the client will be much more one-dimensional and convinced that they're right? Or is it more likely that an advocate who's sort of up and running and into the advocate mindset will be mm. the driving force thinking we are right? The other I think it depends wrong. on the level of the dispute. You know, where, where are you in um, pre-contentious phase? Um, often people are starting to get angry, but they're still very uh, commercially minded and they want to find a solution. And once you submit a request for arbitration and you've tried to mediate or you've tried to find a settlement and it hasn't worked, then they're like, yeah, we're going to go to war mm-hmm. and we're so sure and we're going to keep going. It really depends. I've had multiple deferring diff- experiences um, where, you know, we had instructions from clients where you keep going, you keep going and because there's no settlement possible. Um, right, right. And then others where, you know, we had, regular meetings, business meetings, um, business discussions where they're like, okay, this, can we find a settlement? What do you think is a weak argument that we deserve? But it is not our place, uh, I think, Joel, to, um, to be either black and white or to be more flexible. We are just the voice and the representatives of the That's parties. That's true, but you're also advising at the same time. And I would imagine that you are better 
in a better yeah. position, for example, to like spot a va- very valid counter argument yes. or objection that the other yes. side has that someone who's not a lawyer and who's emotionally invested may not fully appreciate as a good counter argument. And then obviously mm-hmm. it's, it's the advocate's job to inform the client that you know, based on their submission, things now look a little different and our position may have changed because they we've seen some good arguments on their side, as Brian just said. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, I guess you could separate it legal and factual as well, not to say that the whole case is what it is, but that we, we are able to advise on the strategy for the legal, but we're also getting a one-sided opinion on what happened at that construction site for four years. Right. Yeah. And so you're sitting there being like, well, that sounds reasonable to me. And then you go all guns blazing with your blinders on saying this is obviously what happened. And then you get some credible witnesses from the other side saying the very yeah. opposite. <laughs> and I was like, what? Where, where did that come from? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess to tie it up, there's there are other ways to manage besides the, the, the advocacy se- aspect. And that's also just keeping your client happy and maintaining a relationship with your client both to get future business, but to also keep them happy with your work. And I think that also is something that we consider. I don't know if like it's top of mind, but I think it you do want a happy customer. You're talking about the wine and dine aspect of the business now, or what are you <laughs> getting at? Yeah. Also being responsive, dealing yeah. with dealing with inquiries in like a polite manner, how you accept their changes to your draft that you think are right. not necessary, but you also have to pay lip service to them. It is, you do have to keep that front of mind. And I, I think a lot of people maybe that aren't as much client facing don't, don't really respect how important that can be. Yeah. For me, building a relationship is key. Really. They want to feel heard. And, That's yeah. what this, this every yeah. case and, is about, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you need to let them talk. And, and we spend so much time, you know, I mean, um, the more senior you get, you're, you, you're really client facing. So you, they're WhatsApp like, calling you all the time. Um, and Just it, had an idea. <laughs> exactly. Are you sleeping? It's yeah. only 30. Um, can we speak about something? It just came to my mind and they get so excited about it. You know, they're like, oh, I would, this, this is going to change your case. And you're like, mm, okay. So you need to, there's a lot of psychoanalysis, listening and therapy uh, involved in, in a lot of that. And uh, that has been a huge change. I think in my, at least in my approach, um, becoming more and more senior, that has been the thing that has changed the most is, is building that rapport with your client and uh, talking to them all the time to figure out what is it that they want and whether it makes sense or not. So it's so much more than just giving them legal advice for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Soft skills, soft, soft skills. skills. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's all about relationship, isn't it? It's all about how you feel. Yeah. Be a good human. Be a good, everyone is a human. Your state representatives are humans. They all have, you know, they all come from somewhere. You um, heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Governments are also humans. (laughs) Everyone, every human is a human. Every human has a heart. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. And thank you to our dear listeners, some of whom are emailing us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. And we are terrible at responding. We have a backlog. I think it's mostly my fault because I've been the, responding no, the most in the a- past and now I'm not responding at all <laughs> so and we just rely on you let's do it on air because we have one long and very good email from Mike McElrath our affectionate heckler who, oh, was, yes. who we have not responded to because it's such a good email um, we're sorry Mike it was about our scrutiny segment where he 
That's scrutinized true. Yeah, he scrutinized <laughs> us in our scrutiny of the scrutiny process, and it's so good. And we really ought to either respond or just have him come on and heckle us on air instead to save us all some time and add some humiliation to us that I think is well deserved. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, maybe we can have him on the hundred and second episode because I think his podcast was a hundred and one. Oh, heckling right back! So we'll have him on that extra special episode. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so good. Keep emailing us though; we will respond. And if we haven't, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs>